0: Welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 3... Always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by another special guest, Andrew Lawler. Am I pronouncing it right, Lawler?
1: That's correct.
0: Okay. I just wanted to make sure I sometimes mess up names. so I'm like, let me, hopefully I get get his name right. Um, For those who don't know who you are, just give them a little background about yourself.
1: Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm a, a journalist. Uh, primarily, I write about archaeology and uh, I write for National Geographic, for Smithsonian, and mainly my job is to travel around the world, go to archaeological sites and write about uh, new finds.
0: That's awesome. And there was a recent article that we shared of yours um, that was really popular on our site, um, Church Unearthed in Ethiopia, that was um Posted by the Smithsonian Magazine. Um, What kind of motivated you to um, write that article?
1: Well, I was at a a meeting in San Diego, a meeting of archeologists uh, back in December. And I was speaking with one of the archeologists, a man who works for Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And he said, uh, hey, we've got a pretty cool find in Ethiopia. And I said, really, what is that? And he said, we've got the oldest church in sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, that intrigued me, and uh, he was about to publish a paper on this subject, so as soon as that was uh, published, I was able to uh, get an article out and uh, really reveal to readers what is uh, an extremely important find in the history of Christianity.
0: That's helpful, and uh, one of the reasons uh, this I think was so popular when we posted it on our Facebook page and people were sharing the article was that um, we deal a lot with this whole aspect of Christianity being a white man's religion in our organization. And so it kind of combat the, combated the narrative that Christianity started um, solely with Europeans. Um, And so it was helpful in that way to highlight the rich African um, Christian history that is, that is present. Would you like to say,
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, first of all, we've got to keep in mind that uh, Christianity, of course, began in the Middle East, uh, not in Europe, and it really didn't reach Europe until uh, for really a couple of centuries before it really began to spread. And in the meantime, and we didn't really understand this until the past uh, few years, it's clear that uh, the Empire of Aksum, which was an empire around today's Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa, became a very important center for Christianity at a very early time.
0: That's really, really helpful. Um, What, when you were first researching um, this archeological find, what, what stood out to you the most? What intrigued you the most about it? Well,
1: I think like most people, I assume that Christianity had spread from the Middle East and went to places like Rome, where the, the church began to develop, and maybe with some churches, of course, in the Middle East. We have all the letters from Paul to various cities in, uh, uh, in Turkey and other areas in the Middle East. But what I didn't really understand was how the empire of Aksum, that is you know, today's Ethiopia, played a really key role in the spread of Christianity. So let me explain. So in the 3rd century, that would be uh, the 3rd and 4th century, so say around the time of uh, 300, 313 AD, 300 years after Jesus, uh, we know that the Roman Empire embraced Christianity when the Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. Before then, it had been uh, illegal off and on, and Christians, of course, had been persecuted But after that point, it became uh, pretty quickly the official religion of the Roman Empire. So we know a lot about the history of that. What we didn't know was what was happening outside of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire at that point included most of the Mediterranean. That is a good deal of uh, Southern Europe, Northern Africa, as well as the Middle East. But there's also this area along the Red Sea and in, 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 uh, that part of Africa that is the Horn of Africa that sticks out toward the Arabian Peninsula that uh, actually was a very important area in the spread of Christianity. And if you want, I can go into some detail about that.
0: Yeah, please.
1: Okay. So uh, what happened was this: that that in that time of the Roman Empire, the Romans were trading with places as far away as India. So you had ships that were going uh, from the Nile uh, uh, and transferring their cargo over to the Red Sea. And then you could sail down the Red Sea past Arabia and all the way to India. And that's where they were getting cotton. They were getting all kinds of timber and jewels and spices and all kinds of trade goods were moving up and down that area. Uh, to feed the Roman Empire and also to, um, uh, to feed the Indian uh, subcontinent as well, which was a, a very uh, important civilization at that time. So right in between India and Rome lies the Horn of Africa, what we today call mostly Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, that area. And in that time, the people that lived there managed to take advantage of the trade that was uh, Uh, being created between the Roman Empire and India, they became middlemen. So they owned ships, they had ports, they were able to uh, spread goods back and forth, and it became a very, very wealthy empire that included not just Africa, but also spread to the Arabian Peninsula, to uh, what is today Yemen uh, and parts of uh, Southern Arabia. So this is an empire most people don't know much about. And archaeologists have only recently began to unearth evidence of what was going on. So, to come back to our question, question of uh, Christianity, what happened in this fourth century, so right around the time that Constantine was legalizing Christianity in the Roman Empire, uh, the, the spread of Christianity reached as far as Ethiopia, because this church that was recently uncovered by archaeologists has been dated to about the middle of the fourth century. So that's around the time of, that Constantine died, which was uh, in the 337 AD. So at the time that Christianity is just beginning to become kind of get its legs, if you will, in the Roman empire, it's also spread to Ethiopia. And we already have people there that are building churches. Now this find is really spectacular. And this is a Johns Hopkins university in conjunction with uh, an Ethiopian group. Uh, they've been working for several years in a small town outside of Axum. Now, Axum was the, the capital of the Axumite empire. So about 30 miles outside of town, what is today a small village called Bedesamadi, the archaeologists managed to uh, uncover remains of a basilica. So a basilica uh, was used in Roman times as a place to trade. So it was basically uh, like a mall, uh, a long, skinny building. And Christians adopted that. For their churches they d- adopted that design to build churches well here we find this design all the way this is more than a thousand miles away from rome we find it in the middle of ethiopia so it was an astounding find to find evidence of a christian basilica and they know it was christian because there were inscriptions that talk about jesus that that uh, show images of the cross and what's really interesting is that not only do they find remnants of of uh, christian worship there But they also found evidence of uh, carved objects uh, and rings that show bulls that clearly are evidence of the the religion that was there prior to Christianity, the indigenous religion of the Ethiopian highlands. So we have here Christians living with people who are still practicing their traditional beliefs, but are beginning to embrace this new religion, which has come from the outside. the big question is, how did Christianity get to the middle of Ethiopia at this early date? And this is a question that archaeologists are still trying to understand. There are a couple of theories. One theory is that you had people that were, uh, you had monks and missionaries that were moving down the Nile River and then coming up the Nile all the way into Ethiopia. Uh, The other possibility is that they were traders, missionaries who were catching a a lift with uh, the ships that were moving down the Red Sea, and that from there, they were making their way up into the highlands and uh, bringing Christianity to the locals. So we still don't know which is true. There's an old uh, Ethiopian legend of a particular monk who arrived uh, from uh, the Middle East to bring Christianity, it's long been considered a myth, but it's certainly possible now, given this physical evidence we have, that very early on you have Christians who were journeying to this far spot in order to bring Christianity. Now, in subsequently, uh, the Axumite kingdom became actually a, uh, a fully Christian empire. And uh, really, uh, next, to the, next to the Roman Empire, the largest and most powerful Christian empire. And uh, it lasted for several centuries. In fact, even today, uh, nearly half of the people in Ethiopia are Christians, um, uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Christians. They, uh, uh, they, have a, they have people that live on the roof of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. They're represented in Jerusalem and have been for many, many centuries. So they're really one of the oldest uh, strands of the Christian faith uh, that exists uh, anywhere in the world.
0: And that's that's extremely extremely helpful uh, for us us to know. Um, as you were writing um, and researching for this article, what other things kind of stuck out to you?
1: Well, I think the the biggest surprise is that uh, you know of course now we have physical evidence that Christians were there in Ethiopia in this very early time. So I think what surprised me most was that. Uh, while I thought that the Roman Empire is really where Christianity began and where it spread, that actually it was happening in other parts of the world, particularly uh, south of uh, the Mediterranean area in Ethiopia. So I think what's fascinating here is that we get a picture of a larger world than just uh, what we might get from, say, the letters from Paul. Uh, he was traveling in the Roman Empire, But now we know that there were people that not long after Paul, a century or two after him, were traveling even longer distances, possibly as far as India. In fact, we know that there were missionaries that were moving as far as Sri Lanka, which is an island off of uh, an island country off the coast of India. So we know that Christianity was spreading. And what this tells us is not just about the spread of Christianity, but also about the spread of a global trading network. You know, Christianity would have gone nowhere uh, if there weren't uh, ways for people to travel from point A to point B. One of the reasons why Christianity became so successful in the Mediterranean was because the Romans uh, provided peace and security. They provided roads, they provided uh, seaways, they provided ports. There are ways to go from point A to point B without being attacked by pirates uh, or destroyed by storms. Uh, These were always threats, of course, but... Uh, what's amazing is that this network stretched all the way to India. So mm-hmm. it gives us a bigger picture of the the milieu in which Christianity was born. That it's it, we, we tend to get a skewed version because uh, in the New Testament, as I mentioned, we see the letters from Paul, who's traveling around and in, in what's now Turkey in the Middle East, uh, and all the way to Rome, uh, maybe. Further beyond that. But we don't really get this picture of what was happening outside of that area. And that's why archaeology is providing us with a whole new vision of how Christianity spread.
0: How long did it take them um, to get to this? How long did this dig take? Well, the
1: dig has been in process for about a decade now. So uh, it's very difficult to to figure out where to dig. Uh, Axum is the capital, as I mentioned. Uh, and that has been excavated by archeologists over the years. But the archeologists, uh, including Mike Harrower, who is the one who led this expedition by Johns Hopkins University, uh, they discovered uh, some evidence of uh, an ancient mound or tell as you, uh, as they call it among archeologists. So basically it's a hill, but it's a hill that's built because humans over time have uh, lived there and as your pots break or as your house falls apart you just cover things over and you build on top of it so it eventually creates an artificial mound or hill and this is what makes it possible for archaeologists to uh to to determine where you want to dig so mike harrower discovered this tell uh that had been known for some time but nobody had really done extensive digs there so they began to excavate. And to do that takes a long time. You have to very slowly take off layer by layer because archeology span is a process of going back in time. So you have to destroy the layer at the top and get down lower and lower and lower until you can find, uh, you know, the bottom of the settlement. So it took them quite a number of years to get to that level. And then they had to be very careful in excavating this building, this, uh, basilica, because there were lots of very small finds, coins and other things, which you can't use a bulldozer, and, and even using a shovel sometimes is too much. You have to use a brush uh, or even a toothpick to uh, be able to find these small objects, which can really give us important clues as to how people were living uh, and uh, how they were worshiping, what they believed, what they ate, uh, what their lives were like. So this is a very time-consuming process. So this discovery was uh, many, many years in the making.
0: That's awesome. Um I know you've recently written an article for National Geographic um, on some discoveries in Jerusalem. Am I right?
1: Yes, that's uh, correct. Uh, in the cover story of the December 2019 issue, uh, we have a story about uh, underground Jerusalem. So this was a, a story looking at uh, the the massive excavations that are going on now in, uh, in Jerusalem and uh, kind of the intersection of religion with science and politics in what is clearly the most contested place on earth. So I spent a lot of time going into the tunnels that are being dug, uh, exposing. Uh, I'll give you an example one of the big discoveries that's happening right now, it's quite controversial, is just south of the old city of Jerusalem in what is called the city of David, uh, which is the original city of Jerusalem on a little hill just south of the old city, archaeologists have been digging underground exposing a street that was built uh, probably uh, at the order of Pontius Pilate, who of course I'm sure your listeners will all know, who was the the, uh, the head of Judea for the Romans uh, back in the first century AD, the time of Jesus. And so at the, at the time of, that Jesus was alive, he apparently uh, ordered the construction of a massive monumental street that went from the sacred pool of Siloam, uh, which is also mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, there's the, uh, the story of Jesus curing the blind man with mud from this pool. Uh, the street went all the way from this pool all the way up to the Temple Mount, uh, where at that time the, uh, the temple, the Jewish temple stood. So it's a, a very massive project that was built with enormous stones, with these steps that led up that pilgrims and others could have followed on their way up to the Temple Mount. Now, what's controversial about this project is that it's being dug underneath what is primarily an Arab neighborhood. And uh, the Arab residents uh, who are mostly Muslim have complained that uh, the digging is uh, causing damage to their homes above. So it's a very tense situation because on the one hand, you have this desire by archeologists to expose uh, this ancient street, but you have people living above who uh, are complaining about uh, damage to their homes. Uh, in what is a very contested part of what is probably the most contested city on earth. So I spent some time both with the archaeologists below ground, as well as with uh, the people who live above ground to determine, you know, what is going on here and, and what uh, does this project say, not just about the past, but about the present.
0: Yes, I I can imagine. I I think about when uh, people start doing construction work in in the U.S. and it bothers neighborhoods and the uh, frustration that ensues. I imagine that it is similar uh, frustration uh, in those parts uh, that we experience here in in the U.S. when uh, people are uh, doing projects around residential areas.
1: Yeah, that's right. So. Uh, Jerusalem is a very densely packed place. I mean, lots of people living in a small space, and you know, the city has traditionally been divided into uh, into quarters. So you have an area where the Jews traditionally have lived, an area where the Muslims live, and a Christian quarter, along with an area where the Armenians, uh, who are also Christian, of course, live. So it's a very complicated place because you have uh, people with uh, very different beliefs that are living in a very small area. The old city of Jerusalem is just maybe a less than a a, a mile square. So within that space, you have not just uh, people who are practicing three different religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. They also have some of the most holiest places in their religion there. For Christians, of course, that's the Holy Sepulchre. The Holy Sepulchre is, by tradition, the place where Jesus was was crucified, uh, where he was buried, and where he resurrected. Uh, that's all contained within the Holy Sepulchre today. Uh, for Jews, of course, there's the Western Wall, which is the the remnant of the, the vast um, platform that was built by King Herod to hold the Jewish temple that was destroyed uh, about a generation or so after Jesus. And then you have Muslims who, uh, in the 7th century, so that is six or 700 years after Jesus, they arrived uh, in Jerusalem and turned the Temple Mount area, which had been largely abandoned by Christians, into their sacred site. So the Dome of the Rock, which you've probably seen pictures of, that golden dome, uh, sits at the center of the what they call the noble, noble sanctuary. There's also a mosque called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and it is considered the third holiest site in, in Islam. So Jerusalem is fascinating, not just because it has holy sites, but because it has some of the holiest sites for three of the world's major religions.
0: Yes. Um, for those who are listening, I think um, your work is very important as far as um, highlighting um, how these archaeologists archeolog- connect to Culture and their importance and relevance for those who may be listening and have this. Most people, when they think of archaeology, they think of something that they're totally not interested in. Um, how would you uh, encourage those who are listening that have kind of not paid attention to archaeology in the past? Um, how would you admonish them to think about it going forward?
1: Sure. Well, uh, about 150 years ago, Uh, When people first started to go to the Middle East, uh, when Europeans began to go to the Middle East and archaeologists went to dig, really their focus at the time was on on, uh, finding the biblical sites, being able to use science in order to to show where biblical events took place. And it's called biblical archaeology. So Mm -hmm. many people may not know that archaeology in areas like Jerusalem really began with Christians who went there in order to either Find biblical places, or even to prove uh, the Bible true. Now, archaeology is a little more uh, sophisticated now because uh, I think I think uh, many people probably understand that that science can only do so much to prove a uh, belief. Uh, certainly, archaeology can't prove that Jesus was resurrected, but it can uh, either lend credence or uh, or cast doubt on whether or not uh, Jesus was buried in a particular spot. So that's a, that's a a story in and of itself, because in the 19th century, a lot of people did not believe that the Holy Sepulcher was on the place where Jesus was, uh, was crucified and buried. But archeological evidence uh, over the course of many decades shows that it probably is the site, that the tradition is probably true. So there are ways in which archeology span can do a lot to, um, to paint the picture for us of, of what things actually looked like uh, back in those days.
0: That's extremely helpful. How can people get in contact uh, with you and your get connected to the work you're doing?
1: Sure, well I have a website, www.andrewlawler.com that has all of my stories uh, up online that you can read including uh, the most recent National Geographic article uh, which is called Under Jerusalem. Uh, also, the the article I did uh, that we talked about uh, on the Ethiopian church that was recently uh, covered is on that website. And I have loads of other articles, uh, some about biblical archaeology, some about uh, other topics as well. And uh, I, I welcome people to uh, sign up and you can uh, sign up for my newsletter and uh, just really stay in touch with what's going on in archaeology because I uh, Understanding our past is I think really critical for knowing who we are and uh, who we want to be.
0: Awesome, that's extremely, extremely helpful and I appreciate your time. For those who for you remember you can stay connected to Jute 3 by searching Jude 3 Project on all social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can um, go to our website above me, you will see jude3project.org. You can get our curriculum through Eyes of Color our on, take our online course or get merch there. Thank you so much again, Andrew. This has been a rich conversation. I'm so thankful to have you on the Jew3 Project. Until next time, remember, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at wwwjew 3 Project.